Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Almost. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. There we go. That was awesome. Thanks for leading the way, James. That was good. <laughs> Give me some good morning from back in the back. That makes me feel good. Uh, guys, we are going to be jumping into uh, this Genesis series, back into our Genesis series, and we're going to be talking about one particular uh, phrase, but uh, just so that I can kind of establish the context of what has happened to this point, um, we've, been, we've been journeying through this, uh, this path of Abraham, this, this life of Abraham, and we've seen a man of great faith as he trusts the Lord. We've seen him... Uh, give birth to Sarah, give birth to their son Isaac, and we've also seen them arrange, uh, look for and arrange this marriage for, for him to have a bride. Um, what you'll see at the end of chapter 24 is, is this union where um, uh, Isaac is traveling and, and um, Rebecca sees him and asks who this is, and then all of a sudden there's, there's this knowledge of who she is, or who he is, and, and it's beautiful, and, and there's a comforting that happens uh, inside of Isaac, it's a strange verse, but there's a comforting that happens inside of Isaac, because his mom has passed away, and now he has a wife, and, and all is well. And then we roll into chapter 25, and we come to the end of Abraham's life. And this is where we're going to spend our time uh, today because I really want to, I want to highlight something about Abraham that I think is amazing. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 8, it says this, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. And the focus that I want you to, to have today is really on that line, an old man and satisfied with life. An old man and satisfied with life. How many of you want to get to the end of your days and say that you were satisfied with life? Yeah, seems like a pretty awesome thing. How many of you'd like to be satisfied with it as your journey? Sometimes, right? I mean, that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be a bad consolation prize, but, but many of us want this, and, and I started giving a lot of thought to this idea this week about what does it mean to be satisfied with life, and, and more particularly, what does it mean to be satisfied with life as a Christian, as somebody who walks after God, because I think these are, uh, I think these are different uh, that is, satisfaction with life according to the world and satisfaction with life according to those who follow King Jesus. And so we're going to look at this today and we're going to try to explore uh, what I would call five, five key points that highlight the legacy of a person that is satisfied with their life. And so the summary of Abraham's life helps with this. And so a lot of what we're going to be talking about today will summarize the points of the story that we've experienced so far. So let's just jump into this idea of, of a legacy of a person satisfied with life with number one, and that would be a long and fruitful journey. A long and fruitful journey. You can write this down if you're a note taker. It'll be up on the screen. But a long and fruitful journey. How many of you know the phrase today that it's, um, people will say things like, it's, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. How many of you love that statement? How many of you despise that statement? Right? You know why I don't like that statement? Because I like to get to the destination. Right? I, I'm like, when we go on vacation, I am as an adult still going, are we there yet? 
And Sarah's like, you're driving, idiot. Anyway, so, right? So, but, but the point is, is that it's like, I want to be there. But in order to be satisfied with life, really, in order to be satisfied with life, I think what we have to learn is we have to learn that the journey is part of our shaping and our molding. I was talking to Jacob Dolezal early this morning, and we were, we were discussing a couple of journeys that both of us are on, and, uh, and we're also dealing with frustrations that we have along those journeys. And I just simply shared with Jacob that although we want to get to the destination, although we want to get to our end goal, um, we wouldn't become... We, we wouldn't have become the men we are now without all those journeys, all those legs of the journey before. Uh, so for a person who just wants to get to the destination, in retrospect, I often uh, am able to see the value of the journey. So the first thing that we need to remember in, uh, in a legacy of a person that is satisfied with life is that we will have a long and we will have a fruitful journey. Abraham's life spanned many years, as we know. What we're supposed to do with the numbers of years inside of the scripture is something uh, that we dealt with in a previous sermon, so I encourage you to go back and, and learn more about that. But this long life that Abraham lived was filled with ups and downs. In, in light of this, though, in light of his ups and downs, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we are to learn that a life of faith, a life that is well-lived, is, is not without its challenges. How many of you know that? It's not without its challenges. But God promises to sustain us through each of those challenges. You've also probably heard the phrase, um, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's a lie. Straight from the pits of hell, right? Okay, right? God will absolutely give you more than you can handle so that you will learn that you need him to navigate everything. Uh, What God will not do according to the scripture is tempt you. Right? God is not wanting you to trip and fall into sin. Okay? He wants to see you walking righteously. He wants to see you walking purely. But this is what, it, this is what it's about with this journey, right? We're going we're gonna to have ups and downs. We're going to uh, we're gonna learn what it means to live by trust and by faith uh, all the days of our life, even if it gets complicated. God still promises to sustain us. So let's recap a little bit of uh, Abraham's long and faithful journey. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we have Abraham's call and Abraham's obedience. God calls Abraham to leave his homeland and to go to a land that God would show him, okay? And it's the writer of Hebrews that tells us, by faith, in Hebrews eleven eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed and set out on the journey, not knowing his final destination, now, there's something that we need to learn about what it means to, uh, to hear a call and obey God, what it means to have a long journey, a faithful journey, what it means to have ups and downs, and what it means to know all of the specifics and all the details. This is, this is a hard lesson, at least it has been for me. And that is that God has called us to a faith that is... Um, is often a faith that we don't see the destination before we get there. But that is not to be conflated with a faith that is blind. Okay? 
And I need for everybody to really capture onto this, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's not seeing something, but that does not mean it's blind. I don't see the electric current flowing through the wires of this building, but every time I turn that switch on, I have trust, I have faith that it's going to power the lights, right? That is different than me going you know what, I think if I drop this water bottle, all the lights will turn off. I had faith, it just didn't happen because that's nonsense, right? That's not, that's not faith that is without seeing, that's blind faith. You are not called to blind faith in this life. You never have been. You are not called to jump and let the net appear. You are not supposed to venture off on a journey and hope God will give you some direction as you go. That's not how this works. And you might look at that and say, but Nathan, doesn't the scripture say that, that man makes his plan and God ordains his steps? Yes, but a wise man is making his plans with God already in view. Okay? Right? You're not sitting there going... God, I'm going to go into a really strange, obscure profession. I have no talent or ability in it, but I'm hoping you'll just bless me and just make it all work. He's going, nope, didn't wire you that way, sorry, right? It's not blind, it's not blind faith, right? There is faith that is without seeing. So Abraham is this guy who journeys into this foreign land, and he doesn't even know uh, where the X is on the great treasure map. He doesn't exactly know where it is, but that's okay. Why is it okay? Why is it okay for Abraham to do this? Why is that not blind faith? Why is that faith that simply doesn't have the destination in view? Why is that a good thing? It can only be understood as a good thing because of the one who made the call or the promise or the one who called Abraham. God is a trustworthy God. And if he wasn't a trustworthy God, I'd tell you not to follow either. I'd tell you to run the other way. But Abraham has seen God move. Abraham has experienced God in his life. And then God says, I want you to leave and I want you to go here. And Abraham says, yes, sir. And he follows, right? So a legacy of a life that is a person that is satisfied with their life has a long and faithful, long and fruitful journey, right? And in Abraham's call and obedience, we see the start of that in, he, in Genesis 12. Then there's trials and blessings in Abraham's story. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Abraham faced a famine in the land, and God did what? He protected him and blessed him in Egypt, that's an amazing thing that God might call you into something and then the circumstances all around you seem to fall apart. How many of you have ventured into a journey with God and then all hell broke loose? Right? And then how many of you go, God, why didn't you tell me? Yeah, that's exactly what we do. Does God have to tell you? <laughs> No, and he doesn't, right? But, but it is, it's a really important thing to realize that there are going to be really odd things that come your way in a journey of faith, uh, it, however long that journey might be, but there's going to be some strange things that come along your way as you go, and you are going to be tempted to one thing. You're going to be tempted to say, man, hard situation, maybe I misheard God. Hard situation, maybe this isn't God's plan for me. But what did we just say about this journey? 
it's filled with ups and downs. There, there was a teaching that kind of flew through the church for many years and has thankfully taken its, taken its place on a, in the round file, right, in the trash can. But um, there's still remnants of it. And that is that if God has called you to something or if God has made a way, then it's just going to be perfect. You're just going to walk on water. You're just going to be, it's going to be this like superhero of faith concept. That, all you have to do is live a journey with God for two days and you'll realize that's just not true, right? There are hard things that come. And so Abraham is on this journey. He's stepped out. He's trusting God. And then there's famine in the land. And God's like, don't worry, I've got you. Because what else does the scripture tell us? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Abraham is clearly loved. Abraham is clearly called according to his purpose. And God will even use a famine. God will even use conflicts and relationships. God will even use ups and downs of our own faithfulness to bring about a better end. Amen? So, uh, so we see in Genesis 12, 10 through 20, that this famine comes. In Genesis 13, 5 through 9, Abraham and his nephew Lot are facing conflicts, but Abraham shows wisdom and generosity in resolving the issue. This is the practical side of a journey of faithfulness. And what I mean is this, if you really are trusting God, if you really are putting all of your eggs in his basket... When the conflicts come relationally, when conflicts come, you are more likely, I'm not saying that you can do this perfectly, I'm definitely not saying I've done this perfectly at all, but you are more likely to look at conflicts and say, you know what, the Lord's will be done. You are more willing to just be hands off and not try to control every fabric of everything that's going on, because why? Because if the God who called you out of this land to give you a promised land is faithful, that same God and the God who brought you out of a famine, that same God is going to navigate chaos in your life. He's going to work out those family relationships. He's going to work out those, those relational conflicts that you have. And he's going to bring about a better thing. And he may even use you in a bigger way. So, again, we have Abraham's call and obedience. We have trials and blessings. What about tests of faith? <clears throat> I love this because tests of faith come. Before we get to tests of faith, though, there's a, a greater promise that uh, shows those tests to be real and painful to Abraham. And that is a promise of descendants. God gives these promises to Abraham, and it's really beautiful. Genesis chapter 15, 4 through 6, God reaffirms his promise to Abraham and assures him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. So that's a big promise right there, okay? Now let's keep going. Genesis 21, 1 through 7. In his old age, Abraham and Sarah miraculously have the son, Isaac. This is the child of covenant. So when does he give him the promise? Years before. When does it finally happen? Years later. And Abraham's an old man. How many of you have felt like God has, and I use the word felt intentionally here, but because sometimes we can misinterpret that, but how many of you have at least felt that God has given you a particular promise in your life? And how many of you feel like, man, he's slow, right? Like, 
you know that whole old Abraham thing? I'm getting there, Lord. Like, what's going on here? Okay? It feels that way. But what you need to remember about the story of Scripture is that God is faithful even if it doesn't happen inside of your timing. Okay? And so God makes this promise, and then many years later, God actually fulfills this promise in Abraham's life. It seems to emphasize the long part of the journey, though, right? But Abraham and Sarah remain faithful, even with their slip-ups, even with Sarah laughing at God and being incredulous to this idea. So uh, this is where I would say it's not without human struggle, we are lifelong, uh, lifelong learners, and sometimes we learn things the hard way, sometimes we learn things the easy way, but nonetheless, the journey is where we learn them, okay? The journey is where we learn all these things. Okay, so we've got all these promises, all this cool stuff, now let's deal with tests of faith. This is a person that is going to be satisfied with life when they're tested and when they're proven, Genesis 22, 1 through 14, God tests Abraham's faith by commanding that he sacrifice his son. So not only is there this weird lie that says, if you're going to follow after God, everything's going to be smooth sailing, but we would never then assume that God would promise something, give you something, and then say, now I want you to throw it all away. And you're going, this doesn't make sense, Lord. He goes, I want you to trust me. So God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Abraham looks at the situation and says, okay, you've brought me through famine. You helped me deal with a lot. You've worked me through every situation. You've brought me to the land of promise. You've brought me to the places that you have called me to. You know what? I'm sure you'll give me what I need. I'm sure you'll take care of my son. Now, we read this bit in Genesis 22. It's not until the New Testament writer of Hebrews writes that we understand the depth of Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God, okay? Abraham went up on a mountain and put his son on this pyre, this uh, sacrificial altar, right? And he gets ready to, to do exactly as God had asked him, to sacrifice his son. And God, of course, provides a ram and everything turns out beautiful. But we always wonder what was Abraham thinking. And only, till Hebrews, only in Hebrews do we figure it out. That Abraham's faith was simply this. God's kept all of his other promises in this situation. Even if God has to raise him from the dead, God will do it. How many of you have that kind of faith? I don't have that kind of faith, quite honestly. I'd be like, I've heard of resurrection, but what the heck, you know? I've spent a lot of years waiting for you to give me a son. Don't ask me to, to take him out now, right? So this is, this is a journey. But guess what, guys? This is tests of faith. And this is what a person who has lived a good life, that is pleased with that life, this is what they go through. We go through tests, and then we... We hopefully we pass that test and God works with us in those times. Abraham demonstrates unwavering trust and obedience and God provides a ram as a substitute. Uh, a couple other reflections on Abraham's journey. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. Uh, Abraham journeyed as a foreigner looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. We have to deal with the unseen part of faith, and that is, what do we mean that Abraham is looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God? Was he looking for a literal place? 
I don't think so. I think he was looking for a literal, a literal location, but not a literal construction. And so this is a really interesting thing because he is doing this wanting one thing, and that is whatever it is, I want it to be built by God. I want it to be taken care of by God. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, Abraham's faith in offering Isaac as a sacrifice is commended as an act of trust in God's power to fulfill his promise. His attempt to sacrifice his son is a fulfillment, uh, is commended as an act of trust in God's power. That, those are powerful ideas. All of these references, guys, highlight key moments in Abraham's journey, demonstrating his faithfulness, demonstra- demonstrating trust in God's promises. It's his willingness to obey, as always, because faith has to have feet, as I've shared many times. Even in the midst of challenging circumstances, Abraham's journey serves as an example for each one of us. At least the writer of Hebrews intends for it to serve as an example for us. It encourages us to trust God and his guidance in our life, knowing that he is faithful to lead us and faithful uh, to fulfill his promises. So we're asking a legacy of a person who's satisfied with life. And that first element is a person who has spent time or, or who embraces the long and fruitful journey of life. If you try to circumvent it, if you try for instant gratification, if you try for the reward without the walk, you will not be satisfied with life. You guys all know this, that it, people that, are, the people that earn uh, their wealth over time, they have a deep value of that wealth and they have a respect for what it took to get there. But we also know the stories that the next generation often takes it for granted and squanders it, right? You know this is true. Why is that? It seems pretty simple. Seems simple that we just don't work for anything. We don't go on the journey for anything. And so there's a, there's a problem there. This also brings up a really interesting point about uh, the Christian faith. We are saved by grace through faith. But please understand, faith is a believing loyalty, a trust in God. This is why James says that faith without works is dead. This is why I like to say faith has to have feet. And, and what the whole point of all of that is, is to simply say that if you're going to trust God, you're going to do what he says. But if you're not going to do what he says, not only will you not get the reward, you don't really trust him to begin with. Do you think Abraham should have gotten Canaan? Do you think he should have gotten the land of promise? If he would have been like, thanks for giving that to me, just put it on a deed and I'll pick it up later sometime, maybe. No. He has to leave. He has to go. He has to arrive at the place that God is giving him. And it's the same thing for you in your life. So you say, maybe it's your business or maybe it's your family, and you say, I want outcome X. Well, then you got to put in the work. It's not that you're earning salvation in these things, but you have to do what God says to do, okay? So if you want, for example, if you want faithful children, obedient in their, in their lives and following after the Lord, then I would suggest you have to do the train up your child in the way they should go. I would suggest you have to. Now, I'm not telling you that because you do that, it's a fail-safe. Because there's kids all over this planet right, that were raised in good, faithful houses that go astray. 
Do you know that? Yeah, you know that. You've experienced that, right? So, but, but here's my point. You can't expect them to be, you can't have any assurance that you will have faithful kids if you don't at least do your part. Amen? How many of you are relying on the school system to raise your children? We need to talk after church, right? right? Nobody raised their hand because it's absurd, right? How many of you are relying on the church to raise your children, though? That's not the job of the church. That's your job. That's your job. It, the scripture doesn't say, right? It doesn't say, uh, take your children to church and in the end they won't depart. I don't know. Sticky, isn't it? You can take your children to church. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean they're listening. Doesn't mean they're growing. They need you. This is why God has actually created this system of family. So, point number two in highlighting the legacy of a person that is satisfied with life, it's a person that is marked by contentment. How many of you are content? Awesome. There's three of you. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, contentment, contentment is a challenge, right? Abraham's satisfaction with life shows that he was content, right? His satisfaction, his, his joy of life. Hopefully, it teaches us to find joy in the blessings that we have received from God as well. Contentment will allow us to appreciate the present rather than constantly striving for more. In Genesis 15, 6, the scripture says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. This idea of taking God at his word is, is what is seen here. And it's vital in, in life, right? Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So if you're going to be content, you have to go, I believe God. I don't need to add to it. I don't need to stress myself. I trust God. I could ask you how many of you are content in your finances, and there would be a mixed bag. I could say how many of you are content in your family life, and there would be a mixed bag, right? But if I ask the question, how many of you are content in the Lord's working or the Lord's will in your life, Every one of us who trusts God should be people who say, I am content. Why? Because I don't even need to know the end. I know he's faithful. Right? Is this making sense to you? Right? So if, if you're in that place, you can say, I'm content. It doesn't mean you understand all the things you have. It doesn't mean you've tallied them all up. You've calculated everything. It just means you know who gave it. You know who's supporting you. And that is a... It's a hard place to get to, right? But we're called to it nonetheless, right? So Abraham believes the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because he is content in God's planning, in God's ways. Uh, so again, it's vital to life. I think Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, illustrates this well. The contrast for Solomon, regardless of how you interpret the story, seems always to be between vanity and contentment. And you might look at that and say, that actually is a weird contrast, Nathan, but, but this does appear to be what it's about. Vanity uh, and all the things that please you and all the things that are your focus, and then contentment with what God wants for you. And this does seem to be the contrast. So, so Solomon concludes after all of his vain pursuits or what, whoever it is, right? This, the story seems to indicate a couple of things. But if, if it is Solomon, after all of his vain pursuits, uh, 
he comes to this end, and that is the fear of the Lord uh, and keeping God's commandments are life's all. Is that a level of contentment you'd be okay with? I mean, seriously, think about this. You're saying, uh, I want kids, okay? Just fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Uh, but, but I'd like to have a big house. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Oh, I'd like to have a spouse. I'd like to have relationships. I'd like to have good friends. I'd like to have a perfect job. I'd like to have all this. And God goes, fear me and keep my commandments. Now, here is, here is the litmus test. Here's when you know that you're content. Regardless of all of those other outcomes, you go, okay, I'll fear you and I'll keep your commandments. That's contentment. That's hard stuff right there. That's hard stuff. We're not even looking for some like really complicated theological idea here. What we're saying is the practical stuff becomes unbelievably difficult. But God, I want all these other things. But God, all of my friends and all of the people I love have all of these things. And God goes, fear me and keep my commandments. And if you can do that, it is the sign of your contentment. So Abraham says, Lord, I want a son. I don't want Eleazar. I don't want these situations to be, to be my future. I don't want this to be my legacy. I want a son. God says, I'll give you a son. He's like, yes. hundred years later, he finally gets the son. And then he goes, okay, take him up on the hill and kill your son. And he's like, what? If he was truly content... He would do what Abraham does. If you were truly content, you'd do what Abraham does. And go, okay, I figure you'll raise him from the dead. I don't even have that level of contentment. I want it. And I think what gets us there is understanding repeatedly the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father. But this, guys, is a life well lived. This is the marker of a life well lived. So again, contentment. Genesis 13, 2. Abraham had acquired great wealth, including livestock, silver, and gold. God blessed him abundantly and then asks for his child. <laughs> wow. Genesis 24, 1. Abraham was old and well advanced in years. All of this indicates that he lived a life of prosperity and he lived a life of blessing. Abraham's faith in God's promises brought him a deep sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. Even though the book of Hebrews also says, and all of these died without having received the promise. And we, we have lots of discussions on what that one promise might have been, right? But we, we uh, are looking towards Jesus, right? Some moments were instant in Abraham's life. Some took a lifetime. But Abraham remained consistent because he was content in God's word and in God's person. That's where I want to be. That's what I strive to be. So, uh, so we have this constancy of Abraham. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul teaches about contentment. He states that he has learned to be content in all circumstances uh, through Christ who strengthens him. You guys all know this. You got, you got placards on your wall. You've got t-shirts with it, whatever it is, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And when you get into context, you need to understand it does not mean that you can fly or something stupid, right? It does mean, though, what the context meant it to mean. And Paul, in this situation, actually says, I've lived in poverty and I've lived with wealth. I've lived in want, I've lived in abundance, I've lived in all of these circumstances, and guess what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's contentment in a crazy way. I can have a son, and God can take that son. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't know that the weight of this is hitting you. It's hard. It's hard because you just need to pick the thing that you cherish most. And then ask the question, if it was taken, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He does. Ask Job. He knows it personally. Okay? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But the question is, the Lord remains. Will you, will you be content with that? That's the question. And the answer to me is, I struggle with those things at times. 1 Timothy 6.6, Paul highlights that godliness with contentment is great gain. Why is godliness with contentment great gain? If you're just content with what you have, how are you gaining more? And it's not a promise that if you'll just be content, God will reward you because then we'll just use it as a mechanism to get more, right? But what he means by this is that godliness with contentment is great gain because you realize how beautiful everything already is. I've got it. I'm good. I can take a deep breath. I don't have to have X, Y, or Z. It's crazy stuff, but that's what we're called to. We should be grateful for God's goodness if we're going to be a people also uh, who, uh, who are living uh, a satisfied life, right? We should, be, we should be very grateful for God's goodness. Psalm 23, 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is a fascinating phrase because it's not often looked at. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is a declaration as much as it is a promise. Have you noticed that, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'm going to declare to you that I don't have a want in all of this, but I'm also going to tell you if he's my shepherd, what in the world do I have need of? He owns everything. He gives abundantly. He cares for his people, right? So think about that. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The psalm expresses trust and gratitude for God's provision and guidance and then what it would really look like to live in contentment. All of these passages, guys, emphasize the true satisfaction in life uh, and that it comes from trusting God's promises. Being content with his provision and finding gratitude in his goodness Abraham's example teaches us to appreciate the blessings we have received and to find contentment in our relationship with God rather than constantly striving for more. It is through a genuine relationship with God that we can experience true fulfillment and satisfaction in life. Okay, point three, highlighting the legacy of a person satisfied with life. And that is... The fruit of God's promises is evident, right? The fruit of God's promises in your life. Abraham witnessed the fulfillment of God's promises in his life. Despite being childless for years, he became the father of many nations. Uh, he actually didn't see it physically either, right? There are so many things that happened for Abraham outside of, uh, of his lifetime on this earth. We are reminded that God's promises are trustworthy and will come to pass in his timing. So let's deal with a couple of these things. God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 2 through 3, God's promised, God promised to make Abraham a great nation, bless him, and make his name great. Does that sound like something you'd want God to promise you? I think it sounds awesome. 
but then I'm going to tell you, you have to go through this whole Isaac situation and sacrifice your child. And you're like, no, I'm good. Let's leave it here, right? Genesis 15, 5, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So here's this beautiful, beautiful promise. Where's the fruit of it? You are the fruit of it. You and I, right? This is amazing. Uh, uh, the birth of Isaac is the first part in this fruit. Gen- uh, fruit. Genesis 21, 1 through 3, in fulfillment of God's promise, Sarah conceives and bears a son named Isaac in Abraham's old age. Genesis 21, 12, God assured Abraham that through Isaac, his offspring would be named. And then the, the fruit of the promises keeps coming. The Abrahamic covenant comes next. Genesis 17, 4 through 7. God establishes a covenant with Abraham and promises to be his God and the God of his descendants and to give them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, right? And by the way, they still have it, right? Then you have Isaac's lineage. This is more fruit of these promises. This is how you walk away at life and live a fully satisfied life. You look back and you say, God said all of this and God did. That's how you, that's how you are satisfied, right? So Isaac's lineage, Genesis 25, 19 through 26. The genealogy of Isaac is traced, highlighted how, highlighting how God's promise of descendants continued through him, right? So it just keeps going. Spiritual significance, and this is where you and I fit in. Galatians 3, 29, the Apostle Paul explains that those who belong to Christ are what? Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. So like, your name's on the deed. Your, your name's on the will. It's an amazing thing. Romans 4, 16 and 17. Paul teaches that the promise to Abraham is fulfilled through faith and that Abraham is the father of all those who believe. So, so when God gave a promise to Abraham that his, that his descendants would be as, as numerous as the stars in the heavens, uh, the sand on the seashore, How do we see the fruit in that life? We look around at the church. We look around at every one of you, right? And every church up and down this world because if they walk by faith, they are children of Abraham and those children of Abraham are the actual uh, promises of God, which is such a beautiful thing. These passages highlight the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Despite the challenges and doubts, God remained faithful to his word. And Abraham witnessed the birth of Isaac and the beginnings of the fulfillment of the promise of a great nation. The genealogy and the spiritual significance of Abraham's lineage uh, reveal that his faith and the promises made have far-reaching implications for future generations, including us, right? The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham teaches us the reliability and faithfulness of God's word. So I I know that all of this is like, okay, Nathan, these are great recaps, and I I understand what you're saying and what's going on here, but but I need practical things. Well, this this is absurdly practical in this way. If you want to get to the end of your life and truly be satisfied with it, you need to be looking at these things now. You need to be looking at your life and saying, what am I doing that God has called me to that will bear fruit? Because that's what matters. Because I'm telling you, you can leave all the money in the world to your children. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That's not the fruit of what the kingdom of God is about, right? 
You can do a lot of things that don't matter in the end and miss it completely. And when you look back on it, you will ask yourself the question, am I truly satisfied with my life? I've been having a lot of conversations with Barney, and uh, a lot of those conversations centering around just different phases that we reach in life. And, and in particular for Barney, because like, he's one foot in the grave, right? So uh, anyway, right? So, so he's, he's an old man now, and, and, but he, here's where I'm going, tongue-in-cheek, right? Uh, joking aside, here's where I'm going. Barney is looking back at times at his life, and he's already asking the question, am I satisfied with it? right? Am I satisfied with it? Have I done what God wants me to do? And if you put the checkboxes of the world up to Barney, sure, he's checked off some great worldly boxes. It's fine. But if you put up the boxes of what God expects, has he checked those boxes off? I say yes, but, but my, my point is those are the boxes that matter in all of this. Those are the things that matter. Because your kids are not going to remember any of the gadgets and dumb stuff you owned, right? But what what they are going to remember is whether or not you were a faithful father or mother. Whether or not you were good. Whether or not you really uh, walked what you talked, right? So it's really important that we understand this. Okay, number four, point, point four, highlighting a legacy of a person satisfied with life. Abraham's faithfulness uh, Abraham's faithfulness influenced generations to come. His willingness to follow God's lead impacted his descendants, and we are encouraged to live in a way that leaves a positive and lasting impact faithfully, godly, towards future generations. So the influence of Isaac in future generations, let's think about that for a second. Genesis 18, 19, God commended Abraham saying that he would command uh, his children and his household after, uh, he would command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Genesis 26, 3 through 5, God reminded Isaac of his covenant with Abraham and promised to bless him for the sake of Abraham's faithfulness. Genesis 26, 24, Isaac's life was marked by the blessings and promises passed down from Abraham, and he continued to walk in his father's footsteps. Genesis 17, 7, God declared that he would establish his covenant with Abraham's descendants, indicating that lasting legacy extends way beyond Abraham's lifetime, right? And that comes all the way down to us. So how do you walk away in life and say, I'm truly satisfied? It is a person who continues the legacy of teaching God's ways and God's truth. And you pass this truth on and on and on and on. Because if you get to the end, you will, and you don't do this, you will most likely say, if I could have this to do over again, I would have, I would have trained my children the way they should go. I would have, and I know that this is a, just a, a catchphrase that we use, but we would say something like, I would have taken my family to church more. I would have done this. Hopefully what you mean by that is discipled them and shaped them, right? But, but my point is, there's tons of regrets if you don't do this. But when you get to the end of the life, your life and you have done this, no matter what their decisions are, You can look at it and say, I am satisfied with the life that I've lived because I've trusted you, Lord. I've walked after you, and that's what we're called to do. 
Influence of faith, Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. The author of Hebrews includes Abraham in the hall of faith, or hall of fame of faith, whatever you want to refer to it as, and highlights his enduring impact as a patriarch of the faith. And we're supposed to pass those truths down, right? Galatians 3, 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul points to Abraham as an example of those who are justified by faith, emphasizing that those who believe are blessed along with Abraham. Why? Because we're a people of faith. A couple lessons and legacy here, real quick. Proverbs 13.22 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. There are two ditches that you can find yourself going into in this, okay? You can, you can remove, um, okay, let me do this a different way. All of your character, your character on the whole matters as an influence to your children, okay? Your character on the whole matters. If you're a really good Christian, but you happen to be a horrible money manager, your children might become Christians, but most likely you discipled them well in horribly managing money, okay? And I would even put further that the way you manage money or the way you manage time, the way you manage people, whatever it is, I think those are actually true reflections of what Christians are. So if you're faithful in small things, right? If, if you are a person that says, you know what? I just want to always make sure that my, that my ledger's clean, that my books are balanced, that, that this is the case, and th- this can be hard, don't get me wrong. Um, if you're that kind of person, you're going to do that, and you, treat, and you teach your kids in godliness, you're going to do amazing things for those kids down the road. They're going to be truly impactful in the world. So, with that weird idea there, let me talk about the two ditches. You can ignore the cultural context of this and say that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children only means spiritual matters alone, and that way you're, out, you're off the hook from teaching them how to be faithful and being actually a faithful person yourself so you have something to give. And I would say that you're missing the point. The, the whole idea in this culture was that you wouldn't have anything unless that family would pass things down, right? So it is important that you actually be a good steward of your resources. By the way, the whole New Testament talks about it, okay? Jesus talks about money and hell a whole lot, okay? So you're supposed to be a good steward of this. So a man who leaves an inheritance for his children's children, by the way, in case you can't do the math, that's your grandchildren, right? Is the idea that you would actually be, you would actually be doing something that is of value to them, and I would argue physically, for even your grandchildren. That's what you should do, okay? But the other ditch is this to believe that it is only those things and it doesn't include spiritual things, right? So you're like, listen, I worked my tail end off. I got all this money. I'm going to give it to my kids. They don't even know who I am. They don't know what I believe. They don't know anything about me. Shame on you. That was, that's not good. That's not good at all, right? It is very clearly, textually and culturally, both ideas in this passage, So when we want to talk about a lesson on legacy, I want you to realize both your physical actions and physical issues and your spiritual actions and spiritual issues, they matter in this game, okay? So take them seriously. Psalm 112, 1 and 2, the righteous are blessed and their descendants will be mighty in the land. Okay, 
the reason why it's physical, the reason why it's tangible in the real world is otherwise that passage doesn't make any sense or no one can see it. And what I mean is that if the righteous are blessed and their descendants are mighty in the land, if that is true, then people are taking note of it. They go, wow, that group of people is blessed. They do well for themselves. They're really strong. Here's what Christians do today. Yes, but we have a strength in our spirituality. And you know what the world does? So what? Shut up. The world doesn't care. The world doesn't even observe your spiritual strength. They don't see it. But when they watch your life played out before them in the real world, and then they understand that God is behind it, they can put things together and it means something now. Okay? Is that making sense? Good. These passages illustrate that Abraham's faithfulness and obedience had a lasting impact on his descendants and future generations, physically and spiritually. His influence extended beyond his own lifetime and set a spiritual foundation for his family. Abraham's example of faith and trust in God's promises continues uh, to affect you and I today. Abraham's legacy teaches us an important uh, 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 the importance of passing down our faith, our values, our uh, commitment to future generations, our work ethic, all these things. As parents, as mentors, as leaders, we have the opportunity to impact those around us by living faithful lives, by teaching and modeling godly ways. Like Abraham, we can leave that positive legacy and we can be truly satisfied in life if we do so. Last one, uh, gathered to his people. I love this, this idea of him being satisfied with life and this is what it would point to. You're not gonna see this, but we're gonna see it as you pass, right? Uh, those around you are gonna see it as you pass. The phrase gathered to his people signifies, signifies a hope of something more. Okay, what eternal life meant to a Jew is an interesting topic, right? But they believed in something more. In death, Abraham joined his ancestors somehow, whatever that was, right? He joined his ancestors and experienced some sort of reunion beyond just earthly ideas. Um, in Genesis 25, 8, the phrase gathered to his people signifies that Abraham's uh, death was a joining in an afterlife, so we've got to tease that out a little bit, but I don't have the time for that today. Ecclesiastes 12.7, the verse speaks about the spirit returning to God who gave it, right? You know, in the garden, it says that God breathed his spirit into man and he became a living being, right? And so uh, at the end, the spirit seems to return to the God who gave it, suggesting a belief in the continuity of life beyond death, right? Um, now, just dabble into cultural and religious beliefs here. Ancient Near East beliefs, uh, many cultures in the ancient Near East, including the Hebrews, held the belief in the afterlife or a realm where the deceased continued to exist in some form. And this is where it gets really bothersome to people. But the term Sheol is not, in an Old Testament mindset, is not the place where all the bad people went. This doesn't come until Dante, right? In Hebrew belief, Sheol was the realm of the dead. Once you're dead, right? Sheol, right? This is why David says he can bring me up out of Sheol, right? Why would David think he's in hell? Because he didn't see it that way, right? Often described as the underworld where the spirits of the deceased resided. Okay, so point is, he is, 
Abraham is going to be with his ancestors. He gets to go somewhere. Something happens, whatever that even means, spiritually or, or otherwise, right? Um, there's also a hope of something eternal. Job 19, 25 through 27, Job expresses his belief in a redeemer who will stand on the earth in the latter days and he declares his hope of seeing God in his flesh. That's a pretty powerful thing. I want to see God in my flesh. I'm going to be long dead at Jesus's rate of timing. But anyway, but the point is, it'll, it'll still happen. John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus proclaims that he is the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in him will never die, but have eternal life. So one of the things about this satisfactory life of this life that we are well pleased with is a faith and a knowledge that something is coming. Now put all this together. If you have walked your life out following after God, and you have known that he is a trustworthy God. And in the end, he promises something, whatever the world that is, because we don't really know fully. If God promises that to us, why would we trust him all the way up to here and then go, yeah, it's probably not true on the other end? It doesn't make any sense. Let's keep our faith all the way to the end and simply say this, God, whatever the future holds, I know that it's going to be good. I know that it's going to be with you. I get to return to you. I don't, I don't even, I can't even scratch the surface of what it means, but I know that I get to be with you, a reunion with our heavenly father. First Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, the apostle Paul assures believers that those who have died in Christ will be raised with him at his second coming. And Revelation 21, 4 in the New Jerusalem, God is going to wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. If you would trust God to leave your homeland to go to Canaan, will you trust him in this? There's going to be a future place where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. Like, I'm in for that one. Amen? I'm in for that one. These passages suggest that the gathering of his people conveys some hope of an afterlife, whatever that means. And it signifies the assurance of life beyond what we have experienced now and a life that is eternally with our Heavenly Father. For believers in Christ, gathering uh, to, God, to our people would represent the ultimate hope of being reunited with God's church, those who love King Jesus, and even those who are our family members that also profess that belief. It points to some eternal destiny of believers. And I, for one, think that that's the most beautiful thing. So to wrap all of this up, and I'm sorry that I've gone so absurdly long today. Genesis 25, 8 serves as a reminder of the legacy left by Abraham's life. It teaches us to trust in God's promises, find contentment in his blessings, and live with an eternal perspective. Like Abraham... I hope that we can strive to leave a legacy of faithfulness, uh, to be reunited with our uh, Heavenly Father in the presence of God for eternity. All of this, though, church, all of this is what it truly means to live um, a life that is pleasing, right? A life that is, that is, um, is one you're satisfied with, right? I would hate for all of us to spin our wheels and do so many things in this world to try to be satisfied only to come to an end and wish we had done it better. You don't want that regret, do you? 
So here's, here's a promise that I, I can make to you now. God does not say all of his promises are valid as long as you take, them, take him up on those promises when you're 20. Hear me, church. God does not say all of his promises are valid as long as you take him up on those at, at 20 years old. His promises are valid. Like the thief on the cross, his promise is valid the second you commit to it. There have been many things in my life that I look back and I go, man, I shouldn't have wasted so much time doing this or that. For a person that is wired like me, that is probably my biggest frustration of I could have been further, I could have been faster, I could have been better, I could have been whatever, right? All of that, by the way, reveals a very deep problem with contentment in my heart. And I, and I admit that. But my point is that if I will run to God today, I don't have to worry about all those things that I wish I had, I, I should have done. I can just look at him today and say, Lord, I want to raise my kids well. Lord, I want to represent you well. 